Well, if you uh, remember that scripture text that we began with today, I served as feet for the lame and eyes for the blind, or something along that line, I believe Job said. And I've wondered if you have ever done that in your life, if you know what it's like to have some form of a disability or someone you love and you've helped care for them. Many of you know that, uh, you know, the story of how I tore the meniscus in my, my right leg definitely led to some interesting things for me for a while. But more recently, on March 24, I broke my left arm. And I have been in rehab. I continue to be in rehab. And one of the uh, improvements that my life has made is this is the first time I've worn a tie since that day. I've been able to... to tie a tie, finally, uh, get my left hand uh, mobile enough to tie that knot, and so some small improvements are, are happening in, in my life, and I'm grateful for those things while candidly admitting that I still cannot do certain things that I want to be able to do with my left hand. It's not mobile enough to, to do it yet. Uh, somebody asked me today, how are you doing in rotation? And, and now you can see that my, the palm of my hand is almost there. I, before it was like this. I mean, I could not turn my wrist. Uh, and I can get my hand around this way. I'm not sure yet, that's why this is going to stay here for a while, whether I'm going to be able to hold this iPad in my left hand yet while I speak and work through it. Uh, I'm going to try, and from time to time you'll see me shift uh, hands, but... It's been, uh, how can I say this, um, an amazing thing for me to, to go through this process. I've never broken a major bone before, and it's been a long road to recovery, and they tell me it's going to be very long. Well, I have mentioned already in a small series of sermons that we're working on that there are some academic groups that study in great detail disabilities and disabled people in real life, in literature, and in film. They use a variety of methods to do this, and I think they have made some serious progress from time to time. It, the whole thing kind of stems as a result of war. Uh, many of you have heard the civil rights movement, but have you heard of the disabled rights movement? It came about because of World War I and World War II, where we had disabled American veterans and paralyzed American veterans, and, and they kind of grouped together and they began to hammer out things that they believed they needed to make life better, not only for themselves, for other people who had disabilities. War has figured uh, prominently into the issue of disabilities, and sometimes in a very nasty way. If you would like to um, shock yourself just a little bit, you might want to try picking up this movie, which is called A World Without Bodies. And if you look at the bottom of that, it says something like this. Uh, something like shock yourself or brace yourself. That's it. Brace yourselves publication. You need to think twice before you go out and get this movie because what you're going to learn in it is going to shock you, right? It's not pleasant information. Uh, what you're going to learn is that the Nazis first 
developed many of the instruments of genocide that they later used in concentration camps. They developed these techniques on the bodies of disabled people. Now that is sick, right? Sick, sick, sick. Almost a quarter of a million people were murdered by the Nazis in this way. Disabled people. Wow. But even today, it seems to me, both uh, in real life and in film and literature, disabled people are often um, glossed over, made fun of, caricatured, painted out as maybe bitter and mean people because of their physical and mental challenges, almost as if having a disability naturally and unfailingly makes you a mean and bitter person. And you see that a lot, especially in, in film. But even at school, in the way kids are treating disabled kids. So we may need this information again. You'll recall that there is this guy. He's a Jewish scholar. He's very, very good. And he has laid out an outline. How can you tell when a person in the Bible is morally a good or a bad person? And what he says is, there are certain things that you can rely on more than other things. And in the upper end of this outline, he says, you can trust the narrator of the biblical story, the comments that they make. And when the narrator gives you God's unique perspective, you can trust that. And if God says a person's good and God says a person's e evil, or if the narrator says that, you can trust their word. In the middle ground is direct speech and inward speech. Now, direct speech is when uh, the person themselves talk about their own life or maybe someone talks about them. The problem, of course, with direct speech is that we as individuals and people around us sometimes have our own agenda. We don't know ourselves as well as we thought we did, uh, or maybe we're lying or whatever, right? And so it's not as reliable a way of deciding whether a person's good or evil. And then inward speech is when a person talks to themselves, and I do that a lot, and so I'm glad it's represented in the Bible uh, as a way of knowing someone. Uh, but one of the things that's often missing is that you don't always see the Bible clearly say this was a person's motives. And then lastly, on the lower end, you can go by actions, which are subject to interpretation, and then by appearance. All of these things factor into storytelling, and they can be used to describe whether a person is good or bad, whether a person is following a certain path, you still don't know their motives. They may look pious, but that doesn't make them a follower of God. So, for example, when we see the way John the Baptist dresses, right, we, we think of Elijah, who was a good man. But some people fake their appearance, and so those are some things that make it difficult for us. They pretend to be who they're not. So, one of the things that comes up is we're going to st study the story today. We're going to begin to study the story today, actually, of a man named Mephibosheth. And trying to decide whether or not he is a good person or a bad person is a little bit more complex than we might think. So, this could come in handy. Maybe. We'll see. My question to you is that 
has his story been dropped to? And you'll say, what do you mean by two? Well, if you don't know his story, you'll learn it quickly enough. Do we have the same fascination for Mephibosheth's story as we do, say, uh, Jonathan's story? Recently, I went into the ABC, and I find a brand new little book that's been written on the story of Jonathan. It's got all kinds of like, questions, and it's in story form. looks pretty cool. I bought a copy of it. I've been thinking about, wouldn't it be nice to sit down with a small group of you and work through his story, re study his story? Jonathan has always been one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Do I pay more attention to him than I do Mephibosheth? His son, by the way, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Am I more interested in David's wife, Michael, who has about the same kind of material written about her in terms of quantity as you might find on Mephibosheth? Am I more concerned with her? Maybe just because, you know, she was married to David, or maybe because she's a woman. Do I care about the disabled person as much as I care about the other characters in the Bible, is what I'm asking. If you're looking for Mephibosheth's story, you'll find it in a variety of places. Uh, 2 Samuel 4, 4, 9, 1 to 13, 16, 1 to 4, 19, verses 24 to 30, and 21, verse 7. And you'll see his name listed in a couple of genealogical reports in 1 Chronicles 8 and chapter 9. Now, unlike the story of Lazarus, which we focused on last week, and we saw that the, the story of Lazarus does not care at all, really, about Lazarus' illness. What they care about is that he died from them, right? That's the story. But unlike that story, we learn in Scripture how it is that Mephibosheth became disabled. And so we read it in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Saul's son, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. Boy, right there is a story in and of itself. Have you ever wondered how Mephibosheth felt before and after being crippled? Have you wondered about his nurse, the woman who cared for him? How did she feel as her young charge went through his life, disabled from then on? Hmm. Well, at this point, Mephibosheth's life spiraled into turmoil because when his grandfather uh, who was king over Israel, died. You would naturally have expected that Prince Jonathan would take the throne, but he had made it very clear he wasn't going to do it because he believed God was leading David to become king over Israel. Now, eventually that didn't matter because both Saul and Jonathan were killed in a war. And so what Jonathan was going to do didn't matter. Now, whether Jonathan's son Mephibosheth would have agreed that David should become king after his grandfather and father died, well, that's another story and something I'm not sure we could answer well. But the truth is that there were other sons of Saul who had a prior claim to the kingship, prior to anything Mephibosheth might have gotten. So his possibilities of becoming king were a little slimmer 
just because he was down the road a little bit in the family line. But here we read that young Mephibosheth was accidentally crippled. His nurse was probably trying to save him from perceived external or internal threats. She thought someone would be coming after the boy to kill him so that they could become king with no competition. And so, in her haste, she accidentally dropped him. Immediately following this short note, there is a story about one of Saul's other sons. His name was Ishbosheth. Same similar ending, right, to the name. And we read about two men who decided they were going to assassinate Ishbosheth. So they came in, they killed him, and then they went to King David, and they thought that David would be happy with them, and that he would be happy with what they had done. And instead, David said, you're criminals, and you're going to be put to death. And he had them executed right then and there for their crime. Time goes by, and the young David, who is king only over two uh, tribes, uh, Jewish tribes, the tribe of Judah and uh, is part of that, he eventually becomes king over all of Israel. And multiple times we read that God has been blessing him. This is just a sample in one chapter. Same thing repeated again and again, showing you how the, that chapter kind of splits apart into sections. And uh, we read that uh, God made David victorious wherever he went. And out of his love and appreciation for all that God was doing for him, David said, I want to reign like God wants me to reign. And so that's what we read immediately afterwards. David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all his people. So like many leaders, if you, you, know, if you want to do the right thing for your people, what do you do next? Well, the first thing you do, if you've ever been part of politics, is you go out and you select yourself an administrative team to help you. And that's exactly what we read next. David does that. And then David begins to think in his mind, what more can I do, especially for folk who may be, you know, down and out or hurting or suffering in some way? What can I do? And two situations immediately arise. And so we read of one of them in 2 Samuel 9. David asks, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show chesed, kindness for Jonathan's sake? Anyone I can show unfailing love to. And then in chapter 10, we read, sometime after this, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun became king. And David said, I'm going to show unfailing love, kindness to Hanun, just as his father Nahash was always kind to me. And so David sent ambassadors to express sympathy to Hanun about his father's death. There's a man who who's trying to do something in grief and grief recovery, right? He's uh, set a course, and he sees that there are opportunities for him to express God's justice and fair play and love. Now, these stories make us think, you know, David could have chosen other than doing this, right? It, it, even though it's true that Jonathan treated David well, and it's true that King Nahash treated David well, they were part of a larger family group that did not treat David or Israel well. In fact, you could consider them to be enemies 
of both David and Israel. Saul tried to put David to death. The Ammonites were constantly fighting with the Israelites. It seems to me like David was stepping out on a limb by expressing kindness to these groups. He chose kindness over suspicion, kindness over hostility toward them. And here is where we pick up Mephibosheth's story once again. One day, David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodibar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. And he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he fell on his face in deep respect. And David said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba, you see, had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. Now, from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Hmm. Readers of this story start asking questions when they read it. Is kindness David's primary motive for doing this? Some say yes, without a doubt. Others say, well, maybe it's really an example of, a, of that old adage Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Why is Ziba so forthcoming in his responses to David's questions? I mean, wouldn't the whole idea of Mephibosheth being in Lodabar, wouldn't it have been to hide away? Is this man giving up this boy, this young man, quickly because he wants him out of the way? Or is he just cooperating with the king? Does Mephibosheth's name 
And we'll talk more about that later. It'll, it'll show some negativity, but there's some positive stuff, which I'll show in the weeks to come. Does his name or his location offer hints about his character? A lot of Jewish people believe that's true. Some other scholars as well. Does Mephibosheth's deference towards David offer clues about his real thoughts? In other words, is he truly polite and kind? Or is he faking it? Because he has to in order to stay alive. Is Mephibosheth's self-deprecation real, angry, cynical? How does Ziba really feel about serving Mephibosheth? I mean, how does a guy get that many kids and that many servants? Unless he's managed to accumulate a little something for himself. How does he feel about serving this young man who's also disabled? What, if anything, offers us readers real clues about the true character of these people, David and Ziba and Mephibosheth? What makes it clear to us that they're good or bad, that this action is good or bad? How do we feel about Mephibosheth's injury? Does it offer us some clues about his character? I mean, does a disability morally predispose a person to be good or bad? Or does that matter at all? For example, expressing respect by falling on your face before a king would certainly be much, much harder for a person who's disabled. So do we say that shows his loyalty? Or do we read the rest of the Bible and see many, many people fall on their faces before kings and say, well, no, that's just common practice. What reveals true character? So Mephibosheth's story continues. The context is that David has sinned. He has used his power, his position as king, to rape a woman. And yeah, that's what I'm calling it to rape a woman whose name is Bathsheba. We call that a power rape, when a person uses their position to take advantage of someone else. Now, it's very common, power rape, by the way. You've unfortunately seen many instances of it in the news lately, right? Isn't there this very famous movie producer that's been under a lot of heat? Started a whole movement we call the Me Too movement. Yeah, not uncommon. It goes back a lot. Long, long time. David's sin impacts his family. One of his sons rapes his half-sister. Her full brother then murders the rapist and flees. David eventually brings back this boy, his son, and that boy then rebels against his father, David, and plans a successful coup against his father. The young man Absalom, however, dies in battle. A battle against his own dad. But upon hearing that Absalom has rebelled against him, David chooses to flee from Jerusalem to save his life, to save the city, to keep as many people alive as he possibly could. Rather than fight, he chooses to run. And we pick up Mephibosheth's story once again. 2 Samuel 16, verse 1. 
When David had gone a little beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, was waiting there for him. He had two donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a wineskin full of wine. What are these for? The king asked Ziba. Ziba replied, the donkeys are for the king's family to ride on, and the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat. The wine is for those who become exhausted in the wilderness. And where is the son of our master? The king asked him. He stayed in Jerusalem, Ziba replied. He said, today I will get back the kingdom of my grandfather, Saul. Oh. In that case, the king told Ziba, I give you everything Mephibosheth owns. I bow before you, Ziba replied. May I always be pleasing to you, my lord, the king. So readers, once again, seeing this, start asking some questions. Uh, but we notice that Ziba's emergency response is very well thought out. It's generous as well. It's uh, also his answer is very well thought out, too. Who do these resources, do you think, belong to? Do they belong to him, or do they belong to Mephibosheth? And then, of course, did Ziba tell the truth regarding Mephibosheth? Was he lying? Was David too hasty in giving Ziba what he had previously given Mephibosheth? Well, David's army wins the battle that is waging hot against Absalom, his son, and David eventually returns to Jerusalem. And as he draws near the city, you know, coming home, a variety of people come out to meet David. There's the tribe of Judah. There's a man named Shammai, who comes out with a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin, and they are accompanied by Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 servants. And then eventually Mephibosheth comes out, and another guy named Barzillai the Gileadite. Now since we're only studying Mephibosheth, these other parties only kind of quasi-factor into our story, but they do make a difference, or they could anyway. They may color our understanding about things just a little bit, especially about those who come out to greet and help the king. But here's the group that comes out. And so we begin reading again in 2 Samuel 19.15. So the king started back to Jerusalem. And when he arrived at the Jordan River, the people of Judah came to Gilgal to meet him and escort him across the river. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the man from Bahurim in Benjamin, hurried across with the men of Judah to welcome King David. A thousand other men from the tribe of Benjamin were with him, including Ziba, the chief servant of the house of Saul, and Ziba's 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed down to the Jordan to meet the king. They kept crossing the shallows of the Jordan to bring the king's household across the river, doing everything they could to please him. 
I can see right now that, that my, uh, my keynote presentation didn't update my last change, and so I'm wishing it had. Uh, I don't know how I didn't get that this morning. But one of the things we can ask ourselves is, how can we sort out Ziba's motives here? I mean, has he come to help David? Or has he come to further suck up to his benefactor, the king, and get more from him if possible? The company that Ziba keeps here, do they help us sort things out? Barzillai, the Gileadite, was a good man. The tribe of Judah, definitely doing the right thing. Shammai, the Benjamite, not at all. You remember he's the guy when David was fleeing all sad and weeping and everybody's crying as they're leaving the city, running away from Absalom. Shammai comes running out and he begins throwing dirt clods at the king. You bloody man, you're getting what you deserve. Good riddance. He's sucking up. Little doubt of that in most people's minds. But how do we feel about Mephibosheth? Did you note the words, they hurried, they rushed, they kept crossing the river and bringing David's stuff over. They did everything they could to please the king. Did you notice that? How does that impact your decision regarding whether these people are good or bad? Now, in this setting, one of the things we can't tell is were these people still there when Mephibosheth shows up? Was uh, Ziba and his family and servants, were they still there? Hard to tell. He comes out to greet David, and we begin in verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down from Jerusalem to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. Whoa, he must have been a sight to see and smell. Why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? The king asked him. Mephibosheth replied, My lord the king, my servant Ziba deceived me. I told him, Saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I'm crippled. Ziba has slandered me by saying that I refuse to come. But I know that my lord the king is like an angel of God. So do what you think is best. All my relatives and I could expect only death from you, my lord, but instead you've honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? Hmm. You've said enough, David replied. I've decided that you and Ziba will divide your land equally between you. Give him all of it. Mephibosheth said, I'm content just to have you safely back again, my lord the king. Whoa. How can we discover the motives of those who met David as he entered Jerusalem? How can we do it? Which man told the truth? Mephibosheth or Ziba? How should we interpret the actions and the appearance of these two men when they are greeting King David? 
Did David do the right thing when he changed his mind once again and divided Saul's land between the two men? I mean, originally he was going to give it to Mephibosheth, then he gave it to Ziba, and now he's given it to both of them. Can you imagine these two people living side by side? Or did David act hastily once again? Now, lest we think we're done with Mephibosheth's story, we're not quite. Uh, after David returns uh, to Jerusalem, after the, the big war between him and, and Absalom, there is a famine that hammers the, the land of Israel for three years. And uh, David goes to God and he goes, what's going on? <laughs> you know, we need some help here. And God says, this is because King Saul oppressed and abused the Gibeonites. You had a covenant with them. You remember you had a covenant with them. Israel had a covenant they had made voluntarily. They weren't supposed to do it, but they did. And then God says, you made it, you're living with it. Saul did not live with it. Instead, he violated the covenant. And he began to oppress these people. And God said, that's the reason for this famine. And so David says, well, well, man, what should I do? And so he goes to the Gibeonites and he says, what do you want from me? And so they talked for a little bit and they finally said, we want you to hand over seven of Saul's family members so that we can execute them before God. And that, of course, would put Mephibosheth's life in serious danger, right? Serious danger. But quickly we read that David spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan. David spared him. So the readers again began asking, was David right in how he resolved this situation involving the Gibeonites? Some people would say, well, why didn't he ask God what to do? Well, God's not opposed to us asking other people how you want their situation fixed. There's nothing wrong particularly with that. Was he right in sparing Mephibosheth, or should he have given him up? Was he favoring him in some way? How did this situation, the famine, the threat of death, and then, of course, the death of his family members, how did all these things impact Mephibosheth? There are two more verses that add things to this boy's story. We discover that he's known by more than one name. It's not just Mephibosheth. He's also named as Merib Baal. Now, many of you say Baal, but in Hebrew, it's a two-syllable word. Baal. And you know who Baal is, I, I'm sure. But you also uh, see in this story that he had a son. You know, sometimes we think about disabled people and we make all kinds of uh, weird choices about how we think about them and their family life and all. He had a natural, normal family life. Why does this man, though, have such terrible names? I mean, Baal is... The name of what? Canaanite god, storm god. Boshat means, in Hebrew, shame. And some people feel like uh, the name was changed to take the Baal out, which was a shameful name, and instead of uh, it's in its place, they put the word, the Hebrew word for shame. Ishbosheth, same thing. You'll find he had two names, and his last name was Baal, or Baal as well. 
Other people would say, well, no, that's not the issue at all. Maybe the man himself changed his name because he was hiding out to protect his own life. Anyway, what can we learn about Mephibosheth when we discover that he also had a child? What can we learn? Well, as I said, we're going to pick up this boy's story again next week. Right now, here's what I want us to think about. How do we, when we think about people we know who are disabled, how do we think about them? How do we treat them? How do we think about them? How do we treat them? When we go to school, if we're in school, how do we treat somebody who's different than we are? When we go to work and we find somebody who's disabled or different from us in some way because of birth or accident, how do we treat them? How do we treat them? How might we deal with our biases towards people who are different from us, whether by birth or by accident? How do we treat them? Can we do better, both as individuals and as a church? Can we do better in how we treat those who are disabled? Maybe we could even ask ourselves this. Are we sometimes wishy-washy? A little bit like David, we go back and forth. Sometimes we'll treat a disabled person well. Other times we kind of look down their, our nose at them. How do we treat them, the disabled? And can we do better? That's the question. Let's pray. Father God, there are many disabled people in scripture you show a great interest in showing them in the bible's pages now we wish there was more information at times much more but what we have would you help us to rightly decipher it and also use it god use it in our lives to transform us and help us more to be more sensitive people, sensitive towards others, especially those who may have needs or are different than us in some way. We pray in Jesus' name.